0: Have you ever heard someone say, I've made such a mess in my life that God would never take me back? Have you heard I've ever sinned so often so terribly that God would never forgive me? Have you ever heard that I've hurt so many people and wasted so many second chances? I don't think he'd ever give me another chance. I have. I've heard it at the rescue mission. I've heard it in the prisons. I've heard it from teenagers in my high school classroom. You know what, and I've heard it from people that drive minivans with a bunch of kids in the back. So it's something that happens often, and I want to share with you that um, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Satan would like nothing better for you to just convince you that it's too late to just crawl in a hole or hop up on a bar stool and just tell you you're finished. Well, today's message, I would like to give hope and it's not me giving hope, I think it's scripture and his doctrine giving hope to the salvation that he wrought through Jesus Christ. So, going forward, what I'd like to do is um, share something with you. There's one doctrine that I believe teaches hope for everybody, and that's the doctrine of grace plus nothing. So, with that being said, <clears throat> um, I want to start off, this is some things that you've probably heard in that series I did a year and a half ago. So I'm going to go through this. What I'd like to do is my plan is to write about eight individuals from the book of Hebrews 11, chapter 11. But I'm only going to cover four this morning. And then the four I'd like to talk about is, 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 is four judges. They're all right together. They're all listed in, I believe it's uh, Hebrews eleven 32. They're all side by side. And I want to look at their lives because they're very diverse. But before I start, let me start off by saying this. Okay? I'm going to go through three categories. The diversity of Jesus' healings recorded in the New Testament are quite remarkable. Jesus healed all manner of folks with all manner of illnesses by many means. Sometimes Jesus spoke and people were healed. Other times he simply thought the healing. Sometimes he touched the sick, sometimes the sick touched him. Sometimes he spit, sometimes he spit and made clay, sometimes he used nothing at all. Sometimes the sick asked for healing, other times another did the asking. Sometimes the sick were present, sometimes they were miles away. Sometimes Jesus healed in one face, other times he healed in two faces. Sometimes the healed expressed gratitude, other times they did not. Sometimes the healings were a private matter and other times they were very public. Jesus' method of healing was so varied that one could say no pattern was his pattern. As if they looked planned and purposed. As if. We know better, right? The diversity of his conversion experiences recorded in Scripture are just as remarkable. Conversion, not to be confused with Regeneration saints were converted in all manners by all many means. Some saints were converted upon hearing the gospel. Others were by upon seeing a miracle. Some were converted when told of their past. Others were converted when they were told their future. Some were converted early in life. Others were converted late in life. Some conversions were aided by parents. Others were converted in spite of their parents. Some were converted after reasoning Jesus was their best option. Others were converted after running out of options. Some were converted by putting off sorrow and pain. Others were converted by putting on peace and joy. The manner and means of conversions is so varied that one can say, no pattern is the pattern. As if each conversion were personal and precious. The third one, The diversities of spiritual walks recorded in scriptures are also remarkable. By spiritual marks, I speak of faithfulness manifested by post-regeneration behavior, like faith and obedience and love. I speak of walks which comprise conversion, backsliding and recovery. Some saints manifested strong faith in the beginning of their spiritual walk, then waned. Others stumbled in the beginning and waxed stronger and stronger. Some saints began and ended strong, stumbling in the middle of their life. Others stumbled as they began and ended and waxed strong in the middle. Some saints ebbed and flowed with an upward trend. Others ebbed and flowed with a downward trend. The record of saints and how they, are, they live their such diverse lives, one could say no pattern is the pattern. As if each experience were looked at peculiar and particularly. With the exception of Jesus Christ, no mortal ever walked this planet without ebbs and flows in their faithfulness. To illustrate the point, we shall consider the lives of four judges this morning. We shall examine Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. We shall consider their successes, their failures, their conversions, their reconversions, their attitudes and motives during obedience and disobedience. The question I will ask throughout this series is, is which plan of salvation gets all four of them into heaven? Is it a plan which requires a sufficient amount of good works? Is it a plan which requires failures to decrease in magnitude? Or is it a plan which requires a decision, belief, acceptance, or baptism? Or is it a plan accomplished by grace plus nothing? There's a musical group. Now, Probably, brother Richard and brother Greg will probably one of the few people in here that remember this group. It was called the band, and they released a song called "The Wait" in 1968. Is it ringing a bell? Not yet. Okay. Well, what happened was I was thinking of that song this week. Because the song's first verse told of a drifter entering a town called Nazareth with no place to lay his head. It was a rock and roll song, kind of a folksy song. The second verse told of a woman who walked with a devil but then left his company. The third verse spoke of a judgment day, the fourth of a rack prepared for the drifter, and the fifth of the drifter's departure. 50 plus years later, the song continues to get airtime. And 50 plus years later, people debate whether the song is talking about Christ or not. Albeit the song's storyline is what caught my eye. Take a load off Fanny. Take a load for free. Take a load off Fanny. And you put the load right on me. Now you remember, don't you? Yeah. I read the lyrics this week. I don't know if he went to church. Not, I don't know if he's talking about Christ or not. In the song, there was someone called Miss Moses. There was someone called Luke. There was someone called Crazy Chester. There was someone called Annabelle Lee. I don't know who they are. But I look at that refrain, and every time I see that refrain, this drifter is talking to a person named Fanny, and he says, take a load off, Fanny, and put the load on me. I can't help but think of Matthew 11, through 30, talking about Jesus Christ's yoke. That's what it brings me back to. Well, that's what I want to try to do with today's lesson. If there's a work connotation you have in your mind relative to sovereignty, God's sovereignty in grace, I want to take a load off the sinner. And don't put the load on me, put the load on him. Okay, so that's where I'd like to go today. All right, with that being said, let's dive in to the first, okay? I like to look at Gideon, Gideon. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to, oh, 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 I got to share one more thing. I'm sorry. Let me see right here. I got to go here. I want to talk to you about the verse of Scripture that explains the doctrine I'm going to share with you today, okay? If you'll notice, up on the screen behind me, it said double imputation. Not double amputation, double imputation. Okay? And I've even got a verse for it. First, I want to define that word impute. Impute simply means to take something and put it on. Okay? So uh, here's a quick passage that uses the word a couple times. Romans 4, 6 through 8. I just want to define the word. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. In other words, when Jesus died, Jesus' righteousness was taken and put on somebody. Okay, we'll define who that somebody is later. But impute means to put on. Okay? Saying, verse seven, blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So we committed a bunch of sin, and Jesus is, or the Lord is not going to take that sin and put it on you. Matter of fact, He's going to take that sin and put it on Christ. So that's the double imputation. Number one, the sins that you've committed are going to be put on Christ. And the righteousness that Christ did is going to be put on you. Okay? I stole that from Graham's ex-pastor. He created the term. I liked it. I stole it when he was preaching a series on scandalous grace. Scandalous grace. I like that title, don't you? Okay, let's go to the place where I see it now. Sorry. It's not... there. Okay. 2 Corinthians 19 and 21. 21 is the passage that's talking about double imputation. Okay, let me read the passage to get a running start at it. 2 Corinthians 5:19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. In other words, there is a group of people who has sinned, but God is not going to put that sin on them. He's going to put it somewhere else. Verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, ye reconcile to God. Verse 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Our sins were put on him that we be made the righteousness of God in him. His righteousness was put on us. That's the double imputation. And when you think of it that way, God can save all manner of people with double imputation, can he? Can he? Okay. So, I want to do one more line of reasoning with you. Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 says there's one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who above all and through all is in you. This is my reasoning. If there's one faith and there's one hope, I kind of believe there's one plan of salvation. Okay, Just one. Right? You know the, the old nursery rhyme? I met a man going to St. Ives, right? The man had seven wives, each wife had seven cat sacks, each sack had seven cats, each cat had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks and wives, how many were going to St. Ives? What's the answer to that riddle? One, right? As I was going to St. Ives. We don't know about the others. Well, I think it's the same way with Scripture there's one doctrine. I believe doctrine should fit every verse of the Bible, but it also should fit every case study in the Bible. And we're going to look at these four crazy, diverse characters, and I believe there's only one plan of salvation that gets all four of them to glory. That's grace plus nothing. Okay? So that being said, let's dive, jump into our first character. And the first guy I would like to look at is Gideon. Gideon. Okay? <clears> okay? <throat> <clears throat> let me read the verse, Hebrews 11 we're going to wear this one out today and what shall I more say, for the time would fail me to tell Gideon, of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also, Samuel, and of the prophets I don't have time to talk about David, Samuel, and the prophets today I'm just going to talk about those first four guys Okay, so let's talk about Gideon, <clears throat> let me give you the setting and i got a confession to make, too. The math guy in me is going to come out today. You're going to see some more graphs. Okay? I'm just warning you. Okay? I found it very effective teaching tool. But i got to bent towards that kind of stuff, so you'll have to forgive me. Okay? God used the office of judge to lead Israel for 400-plus years. Moses was the first judge, Samuel was the last. Men who filled the office of judge were chosen by God and assumed many responsibilities of governor, general, jurist, prophet, and intercessor. Judges were chosen from nearly all of Israel's 13 tribes. You're saying, oh, he had 12 tribes. No, Joseph had two sons, and there was really 13. Hebrews 11 lists real people with real weaknesses, and Gideon has his share of weaknesses. At the end of this passage over here, verse 32, verse 39 says in all these, having obtained a good report through faith. This is how I reason. He's in Hebrews 11. His faith is being cited. He says all these have subdued kingdoms. They've turned to flight the enemies. Gideon certainly did this. He's listed here. He's a glory bound saint. We're going to look at his life. And sometimes our doctrine will say, he's a little shaky here. Nope, God recorded him in Hebrews 11. There's no shakiness there. Okay? Gideon was the seventh judge chosen by God, the first from the tribe of Manasseh, and he ruled Israel for 40 peaceful years. The record of his life can be found in Judges 6, 7, and 8. If one were to plot Gideon's faithfulness on a graph, it would look like a bell-shaped curve. I'll explain that in a second beginning and ending spiritual life with low faithfulness and peaking somewhere near the middle. Gideon's election. The Midianites afflicted Israel greatly. They impoverished Israel by raiding their food stores, depleting their fields and herds. God heard Israel's cries, chose to deliver them, and sent a prophet to encourage them. God sent the angel to Gideon and told him he'd been chosen to deliver Israel. Gideon conducted himself with less boldness than other men. God chose to become a judge, to serve as a judge. He hid while threshing. He questioned calamity. He doubted his pedigree. He required signs from God before acting. Why would God pick that guy? I just hold a mirror and say, why would God pick me? Gideon slowly stepped out in faith. After witnessing a sign, Gideon cut down his father's grove and sacrificed to God. He stood to Baal, he stood up to Midianites, he stood up to Malachites, and he summoned his clansmen. However, Gideon needed further assurance from God before going into battle. He asked for two more signs. Gideon's victory. Gideon tried God, and then God turned around and tried Gideon. God reduced Gideon's army from 32,000 to 10,000 soldiers. He said that's too many. He had Gideon reduce them from 10,000 to 300. He said that's still too many. He reduced them from 300 armed soldiers to 300 unarmed soldiers and he says that's just about right. Gideon faced the Midianites with pitchers, trumpets and lamps. And the Lord God chose the numbers, he chose the weapons, he chose the battle plan, and he chose the leader to carry out his battle plan. Once again, Gideon's faith can be described with baby steps as he needed six assurances before confronting the enemy. A prophet told him, an angel told him, a fire consumed his cakes, dry ground was turned into wet fleece, wet, dry fleece, wet ground, and he had a confirming dream. Unfortunately, God's wisdom subdued, for, I'm sorry, ultimately God's wisdom subdued Subdue the Midianites. Surprise and confusion won the battle, not sword and spear. With the Midianites on the run, God assigned Gideon the mop-up operation. So 300 Israelites chased 12,000 Midianites. Here, baby steps graduated into manly strides. Yay, he's there, right? Gideon's legacy. Gideon says, was challenged, not by an enemy, but by other Israelites. With every confrontation, Gideon became more violent. Ephraim confronted Gideon much like they did when they confronted Jephthah. Gideon's soft answer quenched the tension between the two. Then Succoth was displeased with Gideon, denying he and his men food. Gideon promised them stripes when he returned, and he kept that promise. Penuel also denied Gideon. Gideon promised him destruction on his return, and he kept that promise too. Gideon did not finish his life well. Gideon's faithfulness could be described throughout chapter 8 as reverting back from manly strides to baby steps and then transitioning to backward steps. A conclusion based on four observations. One, Gideon locked tolerance for people who needed to see to believe. Succoth and Penuel needed to see the victory before they would help him. How dare they do that from the guy that needed six assurances, right? Second, Gideon lacked discretion by asking his youthful son to execute two kings. The enemy showed Gideon's son more sympathy than he did. Third, Gideon lacked judgment when he created an ephod, a snare which caused Israel to go whoring. Gideon was neither a priest or a king and he had no such use for any such garment. And then fourth, Gideon chose many women who provided him many children. Gideon was the father of his children, was neither the father of his children nor of God's children. My conclusion to the matter? The sword of the Lord. Gideon's sword was used to deliver Israel from the Midianites, much like Goliath's sword was used to deliver Israel from the Philistines. It was the rock that took... Goliath down. It wasn't the sword. The sword manifested the deliverance. Use caution when you test God. Know that God may respond by testing you directly or indirectly. Will you long suffer with your fellow man as God long suffered with you? Three, Gideon sired 70 plus sons, but did not father any of them. He won the battle, but lost the war. The next generation was spiritually bankrupt as the previous generation. And then finally, Gideon was God's, despite having begun and finished weak. Gideon's behavior cost him his family and the welfare of the next generation, but it did not cost him his sonship. Gideon's spiritual life caused problems for doctrine, many doctrines, but his spiritual life causes no problem for the doctrine of grace plus nothing. Once again, our faith helps to get us through this life and our faith is not what gets us into the next life. I want to show you something. Okay, This is what God saw. Got it? When Jesus was on the Christ, he saw Gideon's life. That's what he saw. But there's coming a day when God sits on his great white throne and this is what he's going to see. He's not going to see Gideon, he's going to see Jesus Christ. He saw Gideon on Jesus Christ on the cross, and he's going to see Jesus Christ on Gideon on the final day. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Okay. He's our first character. Let's go to the second one. Okay, Let's go to Barak. Still in Hebrews 11.32, let's look at Barak's life. Barak is the second judge listed in uh, Hebrews 11.32, in the biography to be considered next. The setting. The book of Judges records Israel's act- interactions with God during the reign of Judges. The fellowship between God and Israel reads more like a roller coaster ride than a growth chart. The fourth and fifth chapters of Judges is recorded of Barak leading Israel through a valley in a crest of their history. The third chapter of Judges concluded with the death of Ehud in Shamgar. Ehud was Israel's fourth judge and ruled for about 80 years. Shamkar was the fifth judge and ruled for what appears to be the blink of an eye. There's only one verse with one action recorded about him. Shortly after the returns of Ehud and Shamgar, Israel turned back to her sinful ways. True to his word, the Lord backed away from a rebellious people, and as God backed away, so did their protection. The Canaanites conquered Israel, oppressed them, and Israel cried to God for help. Barak's faithfulness. Barak was called to be Israel's sixth judge at a time when the prophetess, Deborah, performed many judge-like duties. Deborah was faithful saint. Nevertheless, Barak, not Deborah, is recorded in Hebrews 11. Deborah was God's mouthpiece, not his military leader. Deborah put Barak in mind of his military duties, giving Barak God's battle plan and his promise of victory. Barak responded with, I'll go into battle if you come with me. What kind of faithfulness is that? What kind of faithfulness is I'll go if mama goes? How ought one describe Barak's faithfulness with this response? Is a backward step, treading water, a baby step, a manly stride, or a great leap of faith? I'll let you fill in that blank. Did Barak respond with humility, fear, or inadequacy? And aren't tandems God's pattern? Moses had Aaron. Paul had Barnabas. Disciples were sent for two-by-two. Two. Isn't that asking for a paraclete consistent with God's will? Not when a saint realized that God's is the only partner he really needs. I suspect Barrett's response ranked somewhere between treading water and a baby step. Barrett moved forward, but at a snail's pace. Deborah agreed to accompany Beric bat- in, <coughs> into battle, but told him that go- doing so would cost him honor. Barak understood, stood, and readied Israel. With Deborah at his side, Barak called 10,000 countrymen and encamped on Mount Tabor. Foot soldiers entrenched atop a mountain against iron chariots is sound military strategy. So how at one rate this act of faithfulness? as a backward step, treading water, a baby step, a manly stride, or a great leap of faith? I would rank this response somewhere between a baby step and a manly stride. Barak was committed, but from a secure position with Deborah at his side. God then had Barak ready his men and charge the seasoned army with chariots on a plane. A maneuver which made little military sense. How would one rate this act of obedience? I believe this response is a manly stride or a giant leap of faith. The only reason I hesitate calling it a giant leap of faith is that Barak had yet to send Mama home. God should have been Barak's only paraclete. Balancing sovereignty and duty. Foot soldiers attacking chariots should be likened the cavalry attacking a tank division. But not when the Lord discomforts the tank division. Deborah's song provides insight into God's providences. God shook the earth, spooking horses, and he opened the heavens and poured down raids, bogging down the chariot wheels. Barak hotly pursued the Canaanites and destroyed them. During the pursuit, the Lord presented Barak with a slain Sisera, a Canaanite general. In a fantastic account, Sisera's demise came via a homemaker armed with a cup of milk and a tent stake. God is diverse when it comes to battle plans, means, and the degree of man's participation in his battle plans. He rarely discloses all the nitty-gritty details of the plan beforehand. Hebrews 11.1 one says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. If he's got to give you all the details, I wouldn't call it much faith. <coughs> Whereby, believing God's promises is faith. Obeying God, ignorant of the details, is hope in things unseen. Moses placed his staff in a body of water. Joshua circled a city. Gideon broke a pitcher and blew a horn. Samuel sacrificed and prayed. Each of these believed God's promises without so he told every detail. Each stepped out in faith, but in actuality performed a relatively insignificant act. Then they watched God go to work. Was obedience necessary? No, but God required it. The collusion to the matter? Although Barak's spiritual walk began slow, his strides lengthened and strengthened over time. He marched inexperienced countrymen against seasoned soldiers. He charged despite inferior numbers and armament. And he forwarded, forfeited a technical advantage simply because God told him to do so. Before critiquing Barak too harshly, consider David. There were times when David needed the encouragement of a friend. David was forced to encourage himself. Nevertheless, David always believed God's promises. Barak was like that. Barak took risks, knowing honor would never be his. In the last biography, Gideon's was represented with a bell-shaped curve. In this chapter, I think Barak's should be represented with an upward-trending exponential curve. That probably doesn't mean anything to you because you haven't had math in a long time. But basically, this is a slope up. And we're saying, praise the Lord. Isn't that what religionists say we should be church members all the time? That's the goal. Is that you? No dips? Are you a straight moonshot to glory? Everybody's laughing, okay? All right. But you know what? Double imputation. This, what you see there for um, Barak, that was put on Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was put on Barak. Praise the Lord. Okay? The graphs are going to get more interesting. Let's look at this next character, Samson. Samson. Okay, we're back. To Hebrews 11, we're looking at the third one listed there. That's Samson. Let's get the setting. The Lord delivered Israel into the hands of the Philistines as a consequence of Israel's evil. After 40 years of Philistine oppression, God began making plans for Israel's deliverance, deliverance which came in the form of a judge named Samson. Judges 13 through 16 record God's compassion towards Israel. The four chapters record Samson's birth, his death, and all his ups and downs in between. Got a hint, there was more downs than there were ups. Mom and dad's faithfulness. Samson, like Moses, was blessed with a set of faithful parents. God's intentions were made known unto Samson's mother before Samson's conception. After sharing the incredible news with her husband, Manoah sought God's counsel for the child, his nurture and upbringing. Upon being instructed, Manoah sacrificed to the Lord. The woman conceived, called the child, had a son, called the child Samson. He grew, was blessed by the Lord, and the Spirit moved upon him multiple occasions. Samson's strength came from two places. Okay. Number one, the conditions of Samson's strength came by keeping dietary and grooming commandments specific to Samson. When in compliance with these commandments, Samson was stronger than any man or beast. When not in compliance, he just became like another man. But there was a second condition. (coughs) Samson's strength came via the spirit which moved upon him. The spirit moved upon Samson in times of need. However, the more Samson yielded to fornication and pride, the less the Spirit of God moved upon him, even in times of desperate need. Consider three times the Spirit moved on Samson when he ran a lion, when he slew 30 Philistines, and when he broke his bands to slay a thousand Philistines. Notice there's not recorded the Spirit moving on Samson in chapter 16. Samson had quenched the Spirit during the chapter 16 portion of his life. He got to a point where he was so self-confident he forgot that he'd relied on God. He got where he was so successful and so prideful he didn't even notice the Spirit wasn't with him anymore. Okay, Samson's weaknesses. Samson possessed extraordinary strength in his arms, his legs, his back and hands but ultimately his neck muscles were weak. He had an eye for the ladies. Samson lacked strength to turn his head. Consider when Samson saw a Philistine woman and told his parents, I want her. When he saw a harlot and went in unto her, when he fell in love with Delilah, a seductress. Samson's eye for the ladies was a stumbling block. A child ought never forget that her heavenly father is proficient at removing stumbling blocks. Samson was tossed into prison after having been seduced by Delilah. Shaved by a servant, blinded and bound in the Philistines. Howbeit, while in prison, his hair grew back, and with his hair came strength. Not the spirit, but strength. Samson's Bitterness. The Philistines gathered to sacrifice to their god, Dagon, fueled by liquid confidence Philistine lords called for Samson, desiring to make sport of him. Samson was retrieved and chained to, between two support beams of the building where the Philistines gathered. Samson's desire was to fell the building, kill himself, and take as many Philistines with him as he could. Consider his prayer O Lord God, remember me. I pray thee, strengthen me. I pray thee that this once, that I may be once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Is he praying for God's glory? He's praying for vengeance. It was not an act of martyrdom. It was an act of vengeance. Samson's actions were neither courageous or worshipful. His actions were bitter and vengeful based on the following. Consider the me monster in his prayer, the me monster is speech loaded with me, myself, and I. Consider the avenged, not God, not his people, not his cause, but Samson avenged me of my eyes. Taking one's own life is without precedent. Let me die with the Philistines. Samson confessed no sins, asked no forgiveness, or brought forth no fruit meat for repentance. He was bitter. Blindness is not a death sentence. Isaac and Eli functioned for many years, unable to see. And the Spirit of the Lord did not come upon Samson during this last extraordinary feat. The conclusion to the matter? Samson was a lone wolf. He had no one to correct him, no one to counsel him, and no one to fellowship with him. Samson's parents tried, but he ignored them and sought no other. The Spirit of the Lord, the paraclete, was Samson's paraclete, but he had become so self-sufficient that he did not notice the spirit left him. Samson's eye for the ladies dulled his senses, made him careless and prideful. Many men were able to sneak up on as he slept. And then finally, Samson was a poor judge of character, choosing unhealthy women and friends. Fellowship among the saints and worship in the congregation are noticeably absent in Judges 13-16. through 16. In the previous biography, we Described Barak's faithfulness and represented it with an upward trending exponential curve. Samson's faithfulness will be represented with a downward exponential curve. So, this is what God saw. This is his life. Started off strong, but it was a steady downturn. But we believe in double imputation. So, this life of faithfulness was put on Jesus Christ, and that's what God saw when Christ was on the cross. And on the day of the great white throne, he's going to see Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. You're thinking, what a mess. Y'all, we're a mess. Amen? Aren't you just excited about double imputation? Every those little ones, those white lies, the black lies, and all the colors in between. On Jesus. Right? What's on Mew? His righteous not a chink. Wow. Okay. Let's go to the last of our four. That's Jephthah. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Okay, Jeff is listed there. Let's get his setting. <clears throat> The Ammonites were gathered themselves together to fight against Israel. Israel looked among themselves for a man to lead them and they were tapped on the shoulder and they said, Jephthah's the guy. This account's recorded in Judges eleven, twelve. These two chapters record Jephthah's birth and his family, his church and his military life and his demeanor. Jeff, the spiritual walk was stable, but without dips in his relationship with God, but without growth in his relationship to his fellow man. He's a strange bird. He had a good relationship with God, but he'd just soon bust you in the mouth and just look at you. He didn't trust his fellow man. And you know what? I don't blame him for his background. I can't fault him. But the thing is, is he never overcame that. And guess who suffered he did. Okay. Jephthah's background. Jephthah experienced more than one kind of discrimination in his life. Born the son of a prostitute, he experienced social discrimination. Born out of wedlock, he res- experienced religious discrimination. And born of a strange woman, he experienced racial discrimination. Jephthah only knew negotiated fellowship. Mom negotiated with Dad. Vain men attached themselves as long as their needs were met and the church elders caught were a no-show until they needed him. That's all he knew. Jephthah's unchristian behavior. He performed several actions that would be considered non-christian. He was not a peacemaker. He was impulsive conceiving and swearing ill-advised oaths. He was self-centered having his speech of Ephraim overcome with a meme monster too. And he was not merciful. He slayed 42,000 Ephraimites as they were retreating. Confrontation and denial was the norm for those that interacted with Jephthah. Half-brothers said, you want our inheritance? You can't have it. The Ammonites said, you want our land? You can't have it. The Ephraimites said, you want the spoils of war? You can't have it. So he learned to dig in and fight back. Jephthah's Christian behaviors nevertheless Jephthah had enough faith to be included in Hebrews 11. Consider these behaviors. In 11.9, he says, If the Lord delivered, Jephthah knew victory would come only through if God blessed. 11.11, Jephthah offered all his words before the Lord. He communed openly with God. God delivered Sihon. Jephthah gave credit to God for every single one of his victories. George, Lord, judge me this day. Jephthah stood ready to sit before God's judgment. And I opened my mouth to God and cannot go back. Jephthah would break, would not break his covenant. And then finally, 12.3, the Lord deliver them. Jephthah again recognized that God blessed him. You know, as, as, as funny as it seems, Jephthah is a type of Christ. Jesus was the son of an unwed woman. Jephthah was the son of an unharlot. Jephthah, Jesus was an alien to his mother's children. Jephthah was an alien to his father's children. Jesus was railed on by religious leaders. Jephthah was run out of town by religious leaders. Jesus was forsaken by his father for three hours. Jephthah was forsaken by his father his entire life. Jesus put off offenses, offenses aside to save his people. Jephthah did the same to save his countrymen. Jesus lived his life perfectly. Jephthah lived his life imperfectly, like you and I. The conclusion of the matter? Jephthah experienced sorrow. Impulsiveness cost him fellowship with his only child. Bitterness cost him fellowship with others. Self-centeredness cost him peace. His reign was short and lasted six years and full of tumult. Jephthah was a product of his rearing. He witnessed negotiated fellowship as a primary means of interaction He experienced confrontation from family, soldiers, countrymen. He thought it was the way that was normal. And he had not witnessed or experienced compassion, long-suffering, mercy, forgiveness from anyone. Wow. Can you imagine growing up and never experiencing compassion, long-suffering, mercy, or forgiveness? No, No wonder why he didn't trust people, huh? But you know what? He still needed to get over it didn't cost them glory, it cost them peace here on earth. Jephthah was a product of his regeneration also. He communed with God always and about everything. He glorified God in every victory, deliverance and success and he trusted God but not people. Jephthah's interaction with was exemplary and stable when he was dealing with God. But when he was dealing with people it was less than exemplary, a mindset which cost them joy and peace. So if I had to look at Jephthah, he was steady Eddie, okay? But at a pretty low level. You compare his interaction with God, and you average that with his interaction with his fellow man, and it was a low level. This is what God saw on Jesus Christ when he looked at Jesus Christ, and Jephthah was there. But this is what God saw on the great white throne. He saw Jesus Christ too. Okay, what I want to do, I want to take all four of these graphs, and I want you to look at them, okay? I don't think you could draw a crazier set of graphs for poor people written in the same verse right next to each other. Amen? You got a parabola, you got two exponential curves, and you got a straight line. You got some going up, some going down. You got some with variability, we got some with stability. But you know what happens? Gideon comes to the end of, end of time and you know what God's going to see? He's not going to see that. He saw that top left one on Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what he's going to see. Right? And he's going to get Barak. And he's not going to see that. Barak's line, he's going to see that on Jesus Christ, but at the great white throne, this is when he'll see Barak. Yes? and you know oh, Samson's that sorry one that goes straight on down right? he's going gonna to see saw, he already saw that on the cross that's been taken care of but when he cuts on the wet throat and he looks at the book and he sees Samson that's what he's going to see and then finally Jephthah's going to be the same thing here's this steady Eddie dead at a very, pretty low level but this is what he's going to see praise the Lord, amen that's what he's going to see Are you a fan of double imputation? I think I am. I think I am. Okay. Let's get practical. We look at everyone written in the book of life, we look at everyone that's going to be judged on that great white throne. And let's take a stillborn baby. And for that, I could go to David's first son by Bathsheba. He wasn't stillborn, but at seven days, that baby died. And by the inspiration of God, David says, I'm going to see him in heaven. How can we get that baby to heaven? And the answer is grace plus nothing. So when that baby's name is looked at on the great white throne, we're going to see Jesus Christ. How about Alzheimer's patient? My dad had very little faith in the last three years of his life. It was gone. Is that a disclaimer? Is that an exception? No. Because you know what? When my dad's name is read, you know what's going to be seen? Jesus Christ. Right? Right? How about Romans 2, 13 through 15 Gentiles? People that never heard the word of God. It says they're justified. You know what that means? When God looks and sees their names, and the great wife, he's going to see Jesus. Amen? How about the Jews that knew the Bible, that were going about to justify themselves, were going about it ignorantly, but they had a zeal of God, but they were doing it all wrong. Are they going to see his good works? No, those have been put on Jesus. What are they going to see? They're going to see Jesus' righteousness. How about people behind the iron curtain? People behind the bamboo curtain? They're going to see Jesus' righteousness. How about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah? God's going to see their names and he's going to look over there and he's going to see Christ's righteousness. How about these other guys like Abraham, Sarah, Rahab and F- Jacob, those are the other four in this booklet. Their stories, their lives, their spiritual lives are just as wild of a ride. They'd all make good roller coaster blueprints. How about Asa, Hezekiah and Josiah? How about Saul, Solomon and Jehu? Y'all, there's only one place all those folks listed in hebrews 11 can get to glory and that's grace plus nothing double imputation their sins were put on christ on the cross jesus looked at jesus christ or god looked at jesus christ and he saw all those sins the ones that were put on him and he was judged and he suffered the consequences of those sins it's done. It's paid. And then there's a time coming where the books are going to be open and he's going to see Rhoda and he's going to see Richard. And you know what he's going to see? He's going to see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that it gets rid of all the levels in heaven and all that nonsense? It gets rid of it. Why? Because we all have the same righteousness. Amen? That's good news. And then we go to that great white throne and he sees our name. You know what he's going to see? Jesus Christ righteous. Not gonna see, he's not going to see that knuckleheaded stuff I did in college. I live like the world. No, he already saw that on Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm going to see Jesus Christ righteous. That's what we have. That's double imputation. That's grace plus nothing. Praise the Lord. I know this was a different kind of message, a different kind of delivery. did more reading than I've ever done before. But I'm excited about it. I'm excited to get this booklet together. I pray that you'll be excited to pass it out to people. Or maybe folks that have children or, or that have led lives that you think there's no coming back from. No, double imputation takes care of all that. That stuff has been put on Christ. And what's put on you is Jesus Christ. And I don't read anywhere where the list is too long to put it on Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you. Thank you.